While you're doing so, actually, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and we're going to turn to the book of Acts. Actually, I want you to do two things simultaneously. I'd like you to turn with your Bible, in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And I would also like you to, if you would, please uh, take out the sheet that's in your bulletin. It's a blue sheet, and uh, there's a verse on it. I'm going to read two, uh, two sections of Scripture right in a row uh, from Acts chapter 1, and then the verses that are right at the top of your page from Colossians chapter 3. So two separate sections of Scripture. Um, my intention was this morning to write all the various verses. We're going to look at a number of passages of Scripture. I was going to write them all on your half-page sheet, but it would have taken a lot to write all these verses out, so I'm going to actually show you a number of them, but I'm going to read first from the Bible, then from Colossians 3 in her sheet, and then we'll uh, continue. This Acts chapter 1, uh, follow along. I'm going to start reading in verse number 1. Then they, that is the disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now listen to this from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes this, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Uh, My goal today for the time that we spend in God's Word is to obey specifically and directly Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things above. That's what I hope to do with you for the next few minutes. We're going to set our minds this way with the hope that we will be able to more easily or be equipped to obey what verse 1 says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your heart. That is where Christ is. Um, He is there. Think about Him there and set your heart on it. That is, the fact that Christ is there is supposed to be the grid through which you interpret all of life. It shapes what you think. It shapes what you feel. It shapes your values, your attitudes. Um, Paul is challenging us, and what I want to do this morning is I want to help you reconfigure what you think about and what you love. That shouldn't be too hard. Uh, the reason that uh, Colossians 3, 1 and 2 are setting my goals for today is because we have come uh, very early in our walk through the book of Acts. We've come to the historical place, and I just read it in Acts 1, where Christ assumes this place where he is at the right hand 
of God. Uh, We've talked about the time and the circumstances. What I want to talk to you this morning about is the significance of what we read in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 describes the ascension. It's an historical event, but it's an episode that is supposed to explode in your mind and in your heart like the largest, the grand finale of the largest fireworks display you have ever seen in your life. These are explosive truths. The reflection of the glow of this truth is to be on your face. It's, it's supposed to stun you with its sound. Its display is supposed to diminish the allure of everything else around you. I think the best fireworks display I ever saw was in uh, Dallas, Texas, and it was in December. It was the Christmas fireworks I was sponsored by a local radio station. The first year that Kathy and I went, uh, we were ill-prepared. The temperature, it was, it, was, it was December in Dallas. It was cold. It was down into the 40s. So uh, we went to the fireworks display, and we found a place to sit. And while, uh, while we were waiting, there were huge crowds gathered at fireworks. And while we were waiting... Uh, there was a couple nearby us, not too far away. They were listening to the radio uh, through a very small transistor uh, radio, a kind of tinny sound, and it was cold. We were sitting there kind of chilly, and this couple was under their blanket together. I don't think they could be arrested for what they were doing, but it's something not in public that should be done. Well, we were sitting there, and this was happening while we were waiting for the fireworks, and then they started. And the air was cold, and it was crisp. There was no wind. And I think maybe because of the low humidity and the cold temperature, the colors were more vibrant, I think, than I have ever seen fireworks be. It's a huge display. As these fireworks started, everything around us faded into significance. It didn't feel so cold anymore. That awful music was, was, was drowned out. The baby makers, we didn't think about them while they were under their blanket in this grand display here. These are supposed to be explosive truths. Uh, I know it's explosive because of how much these events and their consequences appear in the rest of the New Testament. It was explosive in the minds and the hearts of Jesus' first followers, the significance of these things. I want to show you, I'm actually going to show you a number of verses where they talk about Jesus in his exalted uh, condition. Before the, I do that, though, I want you to think with you a little bit more about fireworks. You're probably going to see some sometime this summer, maybe around the 4th of July. And you look up into the sky, don't you, and you see them flash and, and uh, shine there. It's, it's beautiful. Every now and then, while your attention is directed up here, uh, you can see one of the rockets go off. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to just see them explode up at the top. Every now and then, though, one will, will spark a little bit as it goes up. You've seen enough fireworks display, displays to know that while one is going up, you see that and it builds your expectations a little bit. Oh, there's something. It's going. It's going to explode. Sometimes those sparks will diminish. It will go higher than you think. You'll be looking about here, and then all of a sudden, this huge explosion up, up high. Sometimes, oh, and this is depressing for everybody, isn't it? You see those sparks that give promise of a beautiful explosion, and it just dies, right? <laughs> Nothing happens at all. Here's the story in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is ascended. Jesus, the one who's come, he's the Savior, he's, he's come, he lived, he died, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he's ascended on high. And I wonder if this truth has fizzled in your mind. 
or whether or not it's exploded in your mind and your heart in all the brilliant colors that it's supposed to. Well, um, look with me here uh, at exploding in the minds of the men who wrote the New Testament. All right, here's some verses to consider. Whoops, let's see, what have we got going on? Look at that. Oh, I skipped one. All right, look at this verse. Peter's preaching in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, look what he says. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He has exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It was in Peter's first sermon. It was in Peter's testimony before uh, the Jewish leaders. Peter and the other apostles replied to them, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Isn't this interesting how Christ's exaltation is part of the first evangelistic sermons that Peter preaches? I wonder if if you look at most of the tracts you see how they are written. We talk a lot about Christ who loved us and died for us. Peter is calling people to faith, not just in the Christ who loved us and died for us, but the Christ who is now the risen, exalted Savior at God's right hand. Well, uh, let's keep going here, how it, uh, see it shaped them. Now, this is from Ephesians chapter 1, and I actually want to start reading, I've got a pointer, right here at this sentence. That power, God's power for us, is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That's the power that God offers those of us who are His followers. 1 Timothy 3.16, beyond all question, Paul says, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed and in the world, was taken up into glory. This is shaping how the apostles are thinking about the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 3.21-22, verse 21 starts at this awkward and here. Have you ever heard the, uh, the, the person who added the chapters and verses in the Bible? The chapter numbers and the verses are not original, and the old joke in seminary was it was added by a man while riding horseback. And whenever he hit a bump, he added a new number. Well, this verse starts in the middle of a sentence, and he's talking about baptism. Um, uh, he's talking about how baptism is itself an expression of our faith. And let's start reading here in the, the middle. It says, uh, that faith saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. A number of verses from Hebrews. Pastor Scott read this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Another verse from heaven, uh, Hebrews. Well, that too. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why should you cling tightly to Jesus? Because he's at God's right hand. Uh, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And one last verse here from Revelation 3. This is a quote from Jesus himself. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. I wonder how these truths are manifesting themselves in your mind and your heart. It was evident that the apostles had their minds set and their hearts set on things above, where Christ was at the right hand of, of God. Today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's a magnificent topic. I'm not nearly a skilled enough orator to give it the topic, the, the, the attention that it deserves. But we're going to start. The Bible commentaries speak about the exaltation of Jesus Christ as a four-step process. After he came, he crucified was di- uh, and died. There's this four phases of his exaltation. First, there's the resurrection. We celebrate that in the spring a lot, the resurrection. Then the ascension, the ascension. We just read about that in Acts chapter 1. Uh, this week on Thursday, I believe, is Ascension Day. It's 40 days after Easter. And if we were more liturgical, we might mark Thursday as Ascension Day. Then third, the third mark of his, of his exaltation is what's called his session. That's probably not a word you've heard used theologically. You're familiar with the phrase, hear ye, hear ye, the court is now in session. It's the same word, session. Um, this, that word session refers to the fact that Jesus is sitting down at God's right hand. The judge is sitting on the bench, so court is in session. Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand, that is his session at the Father's right hand. And then finally, well, all three of these events are past so far, right? His resurrection, his ascension, his session. Now the fourth one is one that is still yet future, his reign. Resurrection, ascension, session, reign. Christ is exalted. He's the risen Savior. He's ascended on high. He's sitting at his Father's right hand, and he will come someday to reign. We're going to focus on the middle two steps of this process. These are the explosive realities. They, they can bear the weight of your mind and your heart. And I want to survey with you this morning some key passages from the New Testament that show us the significance of this exaltation of Jesus Christ. I want to show you what it means, what it means for following Him, what it means to know Him. I wonder if you know Jesus as He is today. Think not of Him as the man of sorrows hanging on the cross. Think of Him as the exalted, risen Savior and Lord. And we're going to look at several passages that that show us and shape how we think about that. Uh, I'm going to mention a couple of them. We'll spend more time on, on others. First one, just briefly. Christ's exaltation means that He's preparing a place for us. He's preparing a place for us. This is part of what he's doing. He told his disciples in John chapter 14 that he was leaving. And then he told them this. He offered them this promise. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am that you may be where I am. I'm leaving, Jesus says, but I'm going to prepare a place so that we can be together. In Colossians 3, 1, where it says, set your hearts on things above, 
where Christ is, the most important word in that line is Christ. Christ is there. We're going to be with Him. That's the promise that He made before He left. Now, the New Testament here is, is plugging into where Jesus is using an image that all of these, um, all the people who listened to Him in the first century would be aware of. Jesus is like a bridegroom who is off preparing the house. And when the house is ready, the bridegroom is going to come. He's going to take his bride to himself to be with himself. And together they're going to live forever in the house that the bridegroom has prepared. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Eternity is about Jesus and being with him. It's cynically said sometimes by people that... um, Heaven is so God-centered, there's a lot of people who won't be happy to be there. Or if everybody's going there, they won't be happy to be there. Eternity is going to be God-centered. Either you will be experiencing God's wrath for your rejection of Him, or you're experiencing unending joy in His presence with Jesus. He's preparing a place for us. Second, Christ's exaltation means that He is full of glory. He is full of glory. This is one of the themes of John's Gospel. John writes about how Jesus is lifted up. He's exalted. He is rightly to be glorified. Now, the irony of the book of John is that that one of the ways that Jesus is lifted up, one of the ways that His glory is evident, is that He's lifted up on the cross. It's one of the ways that He's exalted. If your if your team wins the sports championship, what happens? You go to the sidelines, you pour Gatorade on your coach, and then you pick him up. You lift him up and you carry him because he's he's your coach. Christ is lifted up. Now, uh, Jesus speaks about his glorification here. Look at this. In John 17, he prays, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In another verse from John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. The Apostle Paul and uh, Jesus both speak about the incarnation in the shape of a you. You You could map out the story of Jesus' incarnation in a you. Jesus before the creation of the world, God's Son, the second member of the Trinity, exalted in heaven in majesty, humiliated Himself when He became a human being. He set aside, He didn't cling to all the rights and privileges of being God, and He took upon Himself flesh, and this is His humiliation. And, and if you have any doubts about the full extent of that humiliation, remember that it was Jesus who donned the towel to wash the feet of His disciples. Even more so, the Apostle Paul says, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is the nadir of his humiliation. Dying on a cross, the exalted second person of the Trinity, dying, dead. Then there is his exaltation. He is resurrected, he's ascended, He's sitting at God's right hand. He entered heaven again and received again the glory that he had before. You can see the U-shape in John and Paul's writing, uh, both of them. Think now, though, of the glory. 
Think of the glory He is now before He was glorious as the second person of the Trinity, as God Himself and exalted in heaven. But think now, He's the God-man. He's the, the conquering hero. He's the one who came to earth, died, conquered sin, and rose again. Can you imagine what it was like for Him to return to heaven as the victor? My grandmother lived her whole life near or uh, in a town, a small town in western New York called Nunday. Nunday, New York. And every summer, Nunday, New York holds a festival in the summer, uh, uh, in the month of uh, July, I believe. And you'll love the title. It's called the Nunday Fun Days. It's convenient if your town is Nunday. Well, um, the Nunday Fun Days were a sort of family reunion a, a little bit for our family. We would always go to the Nunday Fun Days. Uh, my cousins, my aunt and uncles, we'd gather together. And uh, we always went to the Nunday Fun Day Parade, which was the culmination of the Nunday Fun Days. Uh, and uh, the parade had everything you would ever want in a parade. It had bands, it had children, it had clowns, it had everything that you could ever want. And every year, though, I can remember sitting as a little boy on the, the curb watching the parade. Every year there was a group that would come, a small group of men, uh, never more than 12, probably never more than 10. Two of them would be at the front, and they'd be carrying two flags, an American flag and the black POW MIA flag. These were the men from the town who were the Vietnam veterans marching in the parade. You could see them coming. They would, they would come down, and as, as they marched by, uh, the crowd, which had been boisterous, is the parade, right? The crowd would, would, would get quieter, and sun, somebody would start to applaud. And as the Vietnam veterans marched down the street, we all started applauding as, as they went. Well, I asked one of my relatives about this. I was a, I was a little kid. And I don't, I don't remember exactly which one of them answered, and they said something to me like this. Uh, for many, many years, Vietnam veterans were treated with spite. They were called uh, murderers and criminals. Uh, war is always ugly, they said, but for a long time we forgot about the honor of serving other people. One of my, they continued, I think that people stop and clap as part of the efforts to fix the damage. Recognize that what happened to them was not an honorable thing. It wasn't a right thing that they were so despised. And this is our small effort to recognize what, what they endured, both as uh, on the field and as returning soldiers to the United States. These men marched by and, and, and people stood up and, and, and clapped for them. Can you imagine what it was like for the Lord Jesus when he returned to heaven? Huh. He left, he went off to war, he set aside his heavenly crown, he got off of his heavenly throne, he covered his heavenly glory, he died on the cross, he bore his Father's wrath, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he appeared at his Father's side. What was it like when the Lord Jesus appeared in heaven? How big was the welcome home sun banner strung in that great hallway where God sits? Revelation 5 tells us about, about the appearance, about the, of the, the worship of angels. They say to him, you are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased 
before God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. They will reign on the earth. This is what you've done, and you are worthy. This is worth, brothers and sisters, setting our mind upon. This glory. I am not trying to convince you that something that is worth a penny is actually worth a billion dollars. I am inviting you to open your eyes that are blinded often by the darkness of this world and the darkness of your soul. I'm trying to open your eyes so that you can see the most valuable person in the entire universe, Jesus Christ, ascended to his Father's right hand, full of glory. Psalm 76.4 describes God and it says this about Him. You are radiant with light, more majestic than mountains, rich with game. He's describing God as, as radiant, than, more radiant than the most beautiful thing that He could think of that He has seen. This summer, I hope you have a chance to see beautiful things. Some of you are planning to. You'll go to the beach and you'll watch the ocean. Maybe you'll go to the mountains and you'll see uh, those, those beautiful mountains. You'll see blooming flowers. You'll see beautiful sunsets. You'll see billowing clouds. You, Christ, are more radiant. You will not see anything this summer that even compares to the full of glory Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, remember that. Remember that when you're sitting on a rock somewhere watching the sun go down, watching it come up over the ocean. Remember that. Jesus Christ is full of glory. Now, here's a third implication of his exaltation. He has triumphant power. He has triumphant power. As if defeating sin and death were not enough, look at what God did when he returned from heaven. This is that passage. We're going to start in the middle of it again here. That power, God's power, is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God raised Jesus from the dead and then gave Him authority over all spiritual claimants to power. Peter makes the same point in 1 Peter 3. Again, we're going to start reading in the middle. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. He has authority. He has power. He has the right to rule over all spiritual forces, all evil forces, all spiritual realities. And as evidence of His power, He has sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes with Christ's authority to empower His church. And He comes at Christ's command. Do I have this? John sixteen seven. Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Christ has the power to send the Holy Spirit. You could talk about this verse. We could talk about this verse almost any, under any of these headings. But look at what Psalm 110.1 says. This is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. David writes this. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until, you're making, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's an unusual verse. 
The author is David. David is the author. He's the great king of Israel. He's the greatest king of Israel. And he's talking about two people who are his Lord. Who are they? Well, one is God. The capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord. God, evidently. Who is David's Lord? Who could possibly have more authority, more power? Who could possibly make David, great King David, submit to him? Ha! Not a Philistine giant. That will not work. Who possibly could be David's Lord? Not a bear, not a lion, not, not the king of Israel named Saul. Nobody, right? Except, ha God had told David that someday one of his descendants would come. One of David's great, 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 great grandsons would come and would sit on David's throne and he would surpass him in glory and surpass him in power and surpass him in righteousness. Jesus, David is speaking here prophetically of his great son, Jesus Christ. And God says to Jesus Christ, David tells us about this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. And the New Testament uh, exemplifies this. Hebrews 1.13, again, another passage that we read. To which of the angels? Do you want to worship angels? Do you want to think angels are awesome? Do you want to, do you want to be in awe of angels? Oh, look, don't waste your time. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's triumphant in power. And what's shocking about it is in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says uh, that Jesus Christ, through him, we have access to this same power. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is astounding. Motel 6 will leave the light on for you. Jesus will leave room for you on his throne. This is astounding. What Christ has done physically, we have uh, experienced spiritually with this uh, power, this authority. This is an explosive truth. Far-reaching implications. I want to mention one small slice of the implication, just as, as we think about applying what this says. I want to think with you for a minute about fear. Actually, I want to uh, think with you about a, a small slice of fear. I wonder if you are here this morning and you parent by fear. Are you a fearful parent? You, you're, you parent out of fear. You're motivated by fear. You're, you fear what sort of decisions your children are going to make or have made. You fear what's going to happen to them. You're afraid because your kids are making a shipwreck of their lives. Other kids, huh, people you know who are actually not Christians, their kids are doing way better than yours. And you're afraid. I wonder if you have availed yourself of this power this influence you have, seated at God's right hand, a voice in heaven before Christ. Oh, Christ, you are exalted in power. Would you, would you act? You're not restricted. Would you act in the heart of my son, in the life of my daughter? You create Christ, exalted Christ. 
Some of you were, were tempted this week to fear when a judge invalidated Pennsylvania's law defining marriage as a union of a man and a woman. Some of you were tempted to fear. What do fearful people do under these circumstances? Fearful people start to worry. And fearful people uh, talk about losing their tax-exempt status or being arrested for expressing their convictions or being sued and driven into bankruptcy. Fearful people get angry and fearful people get mean. Fearful people start to make homosexuality a joke and talk about things being gay and how stupid that is. And they complain about politicians and fearful people blame things on the president and fearful people make dire predictions about this is the beginning of the end and how we're just one election away from total annihilation. That's what fearful people do. Fearful people don't speak the truth in love. They don't graciously call people out of darkness into light. They don't speak about human sexuality as a good gift from God. They don't acknowledge that we're all broken sinners with disordered desires. Fearful people don't do those things. If Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is at his Father's side in triumphant power, what have we to fear? If he's sitting there, you are never on the wrong side of history when you're sitting at God's right hand. Never. He rules over all. The entire country could be wiped off the map. It could descend into total chaos and it would not diminish one iota of the triumphant power of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. We're going to read the book of Acts and we're going to see how these early followers, they were not controlled by their fear because they were proclaiming good news about a Savior who has triumphant power. If your mind and your heart are set above where... where where Jesus is at God's right hand, that's the safest place they could ever be. So set your mind there and your heart there. Now here's a fourth implication of uh, Christ's exaltation. His redemptive work is finished. His redemptive work is finished. This is one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews. Um, it's enunciated in, in several places. Let me just show you one place where it's uh, stated. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Ha, huh, Psalm 110.1, right? For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. When you read the Old Testament description of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, you will see that there are no chairs in the temple. There's no lobby. There's no couches. There's no furniture makers making chairs. That was on purpose because there's always work for a priest to do. There's always more sacrifices to make. Always more sins to be covered. Priests are like your mother. Their work is never finished. I remember, I'm fairly certain, with all the things that my mother did, she, she, we would come downstairs in the morning and she would have been up already and folded three loads of laundry. And she'd be half ready for school. And uh, we'd come down, uh, we would uh, make breakfast and lunch, we'd get in the car, we'd go. Her car was always in the parking lot longer than anybody else's at school. She'd come home, we'd eat dinner, and uh, she would work again. Always at work. I think I was in high school before I saw my mother sit down. 
A priest's work is never, ever done. Until now. The author of Hebrews is comparing work, uh, Christ's sacrifice to the work that the priests who served in the Old Testament um, did. God designed this work. God ordained that the priests could offer uh, animal sacrifices to cover the sins of the people. We human beings stand condemned by God because He has made this perfect world and we fall short of His perfect standards. And we're worthy of His righteous judgment. It's, it's just for him to punish our sins. And in the system God designed in the Old Testament, animals could be substituted to cover people's sins. Last week, um, it's just a covering though. Last week I was talking with some men from church about gym class. The locker room at my school had showers, but no man, no boy ever used them after gym. So we would go to gym, we'd play really hard, and then we would uh, go out into the hallways back to class. Um, huh. You went back to class hot and sweaty and um, uh, dirty. One of the men who was speaking with said that there were some girls who used to stand in his school outside the boys' locker room and they'd have cologne and they would spray it as, as, you were, as boys were coming out. You had to walk through the cologne cloud to get back to class. It's supposed to improve the smell of sweaty junior high boys, which is about a miracle, I think. Uh, You can cover the smell, but that doesn't really work, does it? Uh, Actually, what sweaty students need is sweaty students need a shower. They don't need their smell to be covered. They need for it to be washed away. And here we have Christ's sacrifice. This once for all sacrifice. The gym class equivalent of a shower that removes all of the guilt and all of the filth and all of the contamination. And he offered that sacrifice once on Calvary and then he sat down. Do you know why he sat down? He sat down because the work is finished. The price has been paid, uh, and through Christ, God offers forgiveness to everyone who will receive it. The Bible says this over and over again. Why does the Bible tell us over and over again that the sacrifice that Christ did is sufficient? It's by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. No one can boast. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saves us. Why does the Bible say that over and over and over again? Because I think the Scripture knows us. God knows us. And He writes us because we all have within us this bent that says, God may say I'm broken, but I'm going to fix myself. This is the religious way to rebel against God. There's an irreligious way to rebel against God. We talk about that actually uh, more often. And the irreligious way to rebel against God is to say things like, I don't believe God exists. I don't think I'm guilty. I'm going to live the way I want and you can't tell me how to live. That's the way it is. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to make my own decisions. That's the irreligious way to rebel. There's a religious way to rebel though. Religious people believe they rebel against God by believing half of what the Bible says. They believe that God is, and they believe that they're guilty before Him, but they don't believe, they will not believe, that Jesus Christ has made sufficient payment for their sin. And thus they do all kinds of things. Good works, saying prayers, 
climbing mountains, offering sacrifices, giving away money, fighting poverty, being a good person, anything but the means that God has ordained. The Bible tells us over and over again, not by works, not by deeds, not by ritual, not by merit. It's hard to see that in our, in our, in our world, this bent. If you left the United States, you'd see it a lot, lot more easily. You could go to Rome and find people who pray on steps because they feel like if they pray on the steps the right way, God will free them from purgatory. You can go to the Far East and you can see temple after temple after temple where people are, are trying to make sacrifices to a God that they hope will hear them and fix their situation because they're, they're trying to make the payment themselves. It's harder to see in the United States. Do you know one way that you can tell you're a righteous rebel, a religious rebel? You can tell you're a religious rebel when you think in terms of what God owes you. When your life falls apart and God doesn't do what you want, when He doesn't answer your prayer, when He doesn't bless the way you want, the way that you think then will reveal whether or not you are trying to earn your way. Because the only people that God owes anything to are the people who think that they have earned God's approval. You're not really resting on Christ's finished work if you think He owes you something. You are resting on Christ's finished work if you recognize He has done it. He's done it. Christ's work is finished. He sat down. He made payment for me. Don't be anxious. Don't be, don't be rebellious and think that you can or that you must merit God's forgiveness. Christ sat down. Now what's stunning to me about Colossians 3, 1 and 2 is that it tells us to set our minds and hearts on things above where Christ is seated. What's interesting, it does not say set your minds on Calvary, does it? It's not interesting. It doesn't say set your minds and hearts on Calvary, on the cross. It does not say think over and over again a lot about the cross. Why doesn't it? We think about the cross, don't we? We talk about it a lot. Usually, huh? When we talk about the cross, though, we talk about it in terms of, don't you feel guilty for what you've done? I mean, look at what Jesus had to do for you. Or we talk about it in terms of resolve. Look at what Jesus did on the cross for you. Think about that and resolve to do better. Be better. That's usually the way we talk about the cross. In Colossians 3, 1 and 2, though, the emphasis is not about forgetting the cross, but about seeing it in its totality. Set your heart and mind above where Christ is. Christ, the one whose cross work is finished. The cross is the sin-erasing, wrath-satisfying, death-defeating, forgiveness-providing, free-for-all-who-receive-it work of the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we see the cross as an accomplished miracle, a glorious triumph that we celebrate. And God welcomes us. He pleads with us to find forgiveness through that exalted Savior. Now, for the sake of time, I just want to mention here the last two implications of Christ's exaltation. Number five, he began his intercessory work. He began his intercessory work. 
He's ascended in heaven. He's our great high priest. We sang a song about that. He pleads with God on our behalf. He reminds God that he has made sufficient payment for our sin. Look at this verse from 1 John. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. As if it were not enough that he made payment, he intercedes for us in heaven. Finally, implication number six, he's coming back. He is coming back. Christ's exaltation means that he is coming back. Look at how 1 Thessalonians 1 describes these Christians. Paul is writing about um, people that he's heard have been in Thessalonica and they're reporting about the church in Thessalonica. This is what Paul's writing about. They themselves, these people, report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Isn't that a wonderful way to describe Christians? We're people who are waiting for Jesus to come back. It's how we think about ourselves. We're those who are forgiven by Him and we're waiting for Him to come back because He's coming back. Not in, we're not the people who wait for him in the sell everything you own and join a cult way, but in the we're setting our hearts on things above way. This is the final step in his exaltation. He's coming back. He's the Savior who has come, was crucified, died, buried, rose again, ascended into heaven, sitting at God's hand, and is then going to come back someday to reign. He's, he's, coming, he's coming back. And for us, this is definitional reality. This is what is ultimately true for us. It puts everything in its proper perspective. We're going to see in the months that are to come, as we look in the book of Acts, how it sent these early followers into foreign cities and across the seas, and they stood up before hostile crowds. They served faithfully rebellious congregations. And he the joys and reality of Christ's ascension roll into your life. They shape how you think when you set your minds and you set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord Christ, we acknowledge that you are worthy of far more glory than we are even capable of, of giving to you. Our, our minds cannot contain um, all of these glorious truths. Our, our, our lives, we live in this, this broken world, our lives can't reflect well enough on your glory. And Lord, we confess, we are tempted to forget. We're tempted to forget um, your priceless value and, and think about you in terms of copper pennies. Oh, Lord. Lord, would you help us to see? Would you by your Spirit help us to see the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ through his gospel? You are the exalted, ascended one. Would you explode this truth in our minds and in our hearts? this all-shaping truth, that this would be for us ultimate reality, that we would be courageous, confident, trusting, hope-filled people 
because your great son, Father, is sitting at your right hand. Do this in our church, Father, we pray, as we wait for your dear son, in whose name we pray these things together, saying, Amen.